They told me for years there was no money in podcasting. Well, they were all wrong. This is an ambiguous podcast solutions original podcast. A podcast years in the making. Centered around You're listening to Talking with Tarasha. With your host and founder of Ambiguous Podcast Solutions, Will Tarashuk. Join Will and his guests as they talk about anything and everything under the sun. Now, without further ado, let's do this. Yes, I know I have gray hair. All right, everybody. Welcome, everyone, to the Talking with Tarashuk podcast. My name is Will Tarashuk, T is in Thomas, A-R-A-S-H-U-K. I'm taking a break from our how-to podcast series because a month about a month ago, I scheduled an interview, an interview I've wanted to do for a very long time talking about finance, the economy, with someone who actually knows who is an expert. And my expert today is Chris Engelbert. Chris is one of the founding partners and chief investment officer of Engelbert Financial Advisors, which is a fee-based registered investment advisory firm that acts as a fiduciary for their clients. I'm going to ask what fiduciary means in a second. They offer services around 401ks, other retirement options, investing, and better ways to and ways to better your personal finances. We're going to talk a lot about the economy, interest rates, and exactly what he does for a living. So I threw a lot of big economic words out there. But without further ado, Chris. Welcome to Talk With Tarashuk Podcast, my friend. How are you tonight? Hey, Will. I'm great. I'm very excited to be on your podcast. This is something, as an old guy, uh, everybody hears about. And, uh, you know, of course, my uh, teenagers are like, Dad, you're going to be on a podcast? Is it going to be as big as Joe Rogan? I'm like, I hope so. One day. Uh, Yeah, one day. So, uh, no, I'm very excited to do it. And I think, you know, the long-form format is going to be really good uh, you know, for your listeners and viewers, because we can dig into some of the behind the scenes, you know, what's an investment advisor do all day? Uh, you know, what's going on with the economy? I mean, uh, and I'm going to give you some, uh, you know, tips and tricks as far as what we think is going to happen going forward. So. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. Now, I'm a late 20 something. I am 20. What am I 27? I'm 27. So how I view the economy and how people in my generation view the economy is very different from your generation and how you view the economy. So we're going to kind of get into like just the, the brass tacks of that. And I, I, my goal is to come across as someone from my generation, um, even though I personally might be even doing better than most people in my generation. I, it's kind of hard for me because I don't know where to fit in and where I actually should identify as opposed to who I relate to in the economy. So that's going to be an interesting battle for me to me to tackle, but we'll see how it goes. So, Chris, introduce yourself to the world, who you are, what you do, your business, and, you know, how you got here. Yeah, well, it's an interesting story. I mean, uh, uh, so, you know, as a graduate of the University of Minnesota Golden Gophers, uh, you know, I studied, uh, I have a dual degree in agricultural business and econ, so I keep telling people, you know, I studied college on how to count cows, but uh, it was probably some of the best education I got because back in the early 80s, uh, you know, people were really kind of struggling with very similar economic situations that we had now. And so what ended up happening is I got literally a job as a traveling salesman for two years. I was on the road 50,000 miles a, a year working for a company out of Boston. And, you know, back at, the, at that time, they were looking for salespeople that A, could make a presentation and B, had some technical knowledge. Well, uh, you know, finally, I was like, I got to get off the road. And there was really <clears throat> what was going on in the investment arena at that time is you had all the big brokerage firms 
trying to figure out how to gather assets and hire uh, advisors. And, and I happened to, and just to, to show you, throw back a name, uh, E.F. Hutton. We had a small E.F. Hutton office in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Uh, I remember talking to the branch manager uh, and he was like, well, you know, they were struggling because they were getting away from people that had super, you know, finance backgrounds. In fact, I'll never forget uh, when I started, there was another gentleman. He was a Wharton MBA and he'd call up and he'd be like, my name is Joe Smith and I'm a Wharton MBA. And everybody would hang up on him at the time. <clears throat> and so, you know, I, I ended up having that right amount of technical expertise, being able to be, you know, understand what the investment markets are, but then also be able to make a presentation to people as well. And that's really how I got started. And then, you know, we had the whole, uh, excuse me, we had the whole uh, genre change from E.F. Hutton to Smith Barney uh, to Morgan Stanley. And I, I did some kind of unique things back, uh, you know, when I was in the brokerage industry, we latched on to the managed money area uh, very early. Uh, I, I literally was in its infancy. And when I talk about managed money, I mean, you know, brokers back in the day in the early 80s were still buying and selling stocks for clients. They'd call you up and be like, hey, Will, I got IBM. I think it's going to have good earnings. Let's buy a couple hundred shares. And IBM would go up and you'd sell it and you make a commission. Uh, and, and I was like, I, I don't think that's the right thing to do for people. You know, how to, uh, you know, I was literally about your age when I started. I'm like, how do rich people make money? Mm -hmm. And it dawned on me that rich people hire professional money managers. So I was kind of at the beginning of really the professional money manager stage and throughout my career. I, I mean, you know, what I enjoy about my job is I, I talk to these money managers and it's the ultimate software business. And what I mean by that is they're literally taking your money and making money with that. Well, then flash forward, you know, I would hire money managers for wealthy individuals. And then I saw all the mistakes that they made. Uh, you know, they buy stocks on the way down, uh, you, you know, uh, over concentration, whatever the case may be. And then finally, when we decided to become what's called a registered investment advisor, uh, you know, we were doing money management for clients ourselves. So we have a couple of products that that we have, uh, but we still use a lot of third party managers, too. And and the RIA or the registered investment advisor space was the perfect fit for us. I mean, you know, really registered investment advisors were the first money managers that were out there. Well, now in the last 15 years, they are advisors that have left the wirehouse who now manage their clients' assets. So it's been a really exciting journey. And uh, now with all the different products out there, obviously cryptocurrencies, et cetera, we'll see where it goes in the future. So. Right. And you started the business with your wife, correct? In, yeah. In, yeah. So in Pennsylvania. Uh, yeah. So she, uh, uh, everybody's like, Hey, what's it like working with your wife? I'm like, well, if your wife's really good at what she does, it's really easy. Right. Right. So I'm the front of the house. She's the back of the house. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, she's got 20, she doesn't like me to say this, but she has like 22 years of experience. So she started right out of college and she worked in all the operational aspects uh, of the investment business. So it was a very natural fit, uh, you know, for us to open our own shop. Uh, you know, I like to tell people we're like that cool little pub uh, where you come in, we know you, we have certain beers on tap. Uh, you can only get those beers here. Uh, and we know your kids and, and you know, et cetera. Uh, and that really resonates with people. People like to deal with people that, you know, hopefully know what they're talking about and can get things done. 
Yeah. So like the RIA is the type of firm you run. <clears throat> yeah. So there's two. So there's the broker dealer world, and those uh-huh. are the the Merrill Lynch's, the Morgan Stanleys, the Stiffels of the world. And in the broker dealer world, they can charge a fee to manage money, but they can also charge a commission, you know, to buy or sell various investments. The RIA world uh, is a registered investment advisor, and typically a pure RIA only charges a fee on assets. So for example, right. uh, if somebody has $100,000, we charge one and a quarter percent. We bill it quarterly, not one and a quarter billed each quarter, but 0.3125. Uh, there's no transaction to buy or sell. Uh, we use many of the major custodians like TD. Of course, they bought, got bought by Schwab, uh, Fidelity, Pershing. Uh, and there's some actually some other custodians that are starting to come along. So, you know, there are hybrid RIA firms that, you know, people are dual licensed and they can do, you know, sell insurance and, and, and do some commission-based products. But really the spectrum is, are you a broker dealer firm or are you an RIA? And we like the RIA because what you alluded to from a fiduciary standpoint, we were, you know, we, we were kind of that weird cat at the broker dealer firm at Smith Barney and Morgan Stanley, because we always charge the fee to manage money. And all my, you know, coworkers would be like, why do you do that? I'm like, cause it's the right thing to do. And you know, I'll never forget. I had one guy tell me, he's like, well, I can spin some of these accounts and make three, five, eight, 10% on commission. And I, and I, and you know, sometimes, you know, you can be very prescient. And I, I remember saying to him at some point in the future, there's going to be no more commissions charged by anybody. And sure enough, I was right because what ended up happening is about five, six years ago, the entire industry went commission free. Nobody gets charged a commission to buy or sell a stock or a bond anymore. So, you know, I, I, we like the RIA platform, uh, you know, because again, we're fiduciary. I got to look at you, the client and say, okay, how much risk can you take? Uh, and am, am I doing the right thing for you? I mean, that's really what it comes down to. So. So are your clients typically older? I would assume it's more older generation because you do a lot of 401ks and retirement planning as well. Or is, do you have, a, do you have a, a fair mixed bag of old and young people? As yeah, clients? I mean, it, it always skews older because, mm-hmm. you know, older people have the money. But, you know, we've, we've got. And they're planning uh, it, they're know, trying couple, to plan what to do with their money, too. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, young you know, people, people love spending money. Right. Like people in your generation are coming on strong now because once again, you've what we've all heard, there's several trillion dollars in assets moving mm-hmm. from one generation to another. We have clients where we have the clients, we have their adult children, and we have their children. And one of the other things I like about being an RIA is that when we were at the wirehouse, they were like, Oh, you have to have an account with a hundred thousand dollar minimum. I was like, Are you kidding me? Uh, and and we used to recoil in horror when a wealthy client would say, Hey, can you open a $10,000 IRA for my, my kid, because we were actually dinged for doing that. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. You know, if this person sees that we have to charge them X, Y, Z fee, you know, when they eventually inherit the money, they're going to be like, I don't want to deal with you. So uh, we don't charge any fee for anybody below 10,000. We're trying to get that next generation of investor to get exposed to what's going on out there. Um, and, and, you know, that's the latitude we have of running our own business where we can do that. And, and you can't do that at, at, you know, a lot of these, you know, larger wirehouse firms. I mean, uh, you, you can do it, but they send you to an 800 number. Now that kind of dovetails into what's, what's happened with, you know, I hate to say your generation, but a lot of young people, uh, you know, there's a lot of these robo advisors mm-hmm. and when the market was real hot, 
you know, billions of dollars were pouring in robo-advisors and they were buying Vanguard funds, et cetera. And I always said the day will come when people get enough money and where they say, well, wait a minute, you know, these robo-advisors are good, but, you know, the market, for example, in 2022 is down, you know, 20%. And what's my robo-advisor doing? And, and what we found all along is that as people get more money, uh, you know, they want to talk to somebody. They don't want to be like an 800 number. Uh, you know, they want to they want to have somebody that you know gives them some ideas, some vision, strategy. We do well. We do a ton mm -hmm. of strategy at our shop. So, like, I had a call. Uh, we happen to specialize in police and uh, teachers. Uh, you know, that's our strong. You know, one of our verticals. And I had an officer today. He's going to be retiring in two or three years. He just wanted to chat for like a half an hour, like, hey, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. And I I was like, hey, did you think about this or this? And, you know, that's that strategy really helps people. And I think younger people are desperate for to have to talk to somebody to give them some strategies, really what they are. So well, I mean, financial literacy in general <laughs> is just such a big problem for young people because they, you know, they don't know what they don't know. Right, but need, need someone to teach them, and yeah, young people, I love you, but sometimes you don't like to listen either. So right. there's plenty of blame to go around. And luckily, financial literacy month was, I believe, last month. Yeah. Um, yeah. So well, I mean, and what's what's dangerous now? And I said this back. So we have CNBC, CNBC and I'm dating myself because I mm -hmm. remember when it was the Financial News Network, and I was like, oh man, I'm going to be out of a job because people are going to watch TV and they're going to know everything about the markets. Well. The problem is, it's like drinking from a fire hose. You know, are you, should you be trading currencies? Should you be, you know, whatever. And so now one of the problems out there, and, and this is where you're helping by, you know, doing these podcasts and getting real people is that, you know, you're seeing people on TikTok and YouTube and they're pushing stuff. And, you know, obviously I don't want to denigrate the cryptocurrency bros, but that's probably been one of the worst that's ever because, you know, it's really been kind of a scam. And, and you know, I, I think the younger generation is realizing that, you know, they've gone from talking about Bitcoin and Ethereum to talking about getting a, you know, six month CD at four and a half percent now. And, and, you know, they're like, well, wait a minute, maybe I shouldn't have all my money in one particular asset class. And oh, by the way, not only do things go up, but they come down in value too. They always so, go down as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so I think, you know, I, you know, I don't want to, you know, say, hey, I'm like a doctor or whatever. I mean, uh, you know, doctors do very important jobs, but, you know, everything that most, you know, we have 300 clients and everything that people have gone through, we've gone through with them and 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 may not be exact same thing, but it's similar. And so I can be like, hey, Will, you're, you should be focusing on this. You should be focusing on that. Uh, just to cut, you know, to kind of like the younger generation, uh, you know, the biggest problem I see um, in the younger generation is over leverage, which is a fancy word for too much debt. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, whether it's getting a credit card when you were in college or buying too big a house or, you know, getting the $500 a month, you know, BMW payment because you're now you're making a hundred grand a year. That's a killer. That debt is a killer. And, and what I really like to see, it's funny because you know, I have clients that are in their 70s and 80s. And they're like, this young generation, they don't know what they're doing. And I'm like, you know, that's not true. I said, there's a movement out there of people that are, you know, saving money, uh, delaying, you know, try, trying to retire, you know, the whole fire thing. Yeah, uh, you know, the fire movement. 
Yeah, the whole yep. fire movement. Now, I think that was a little radical. Uh, yeah, you know, I'm going to retire by 40. Good luck. Yeah, right. <laughs> Good exactly. luck. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, you know, I, it's like, what are you going to do if you retire at 40? You can only walk on the beach for so long. Yeah. Um, but I, I think, you know, I, I think understanding when and how to use debt is something that people don't really think about it. Like, you know, I got people right now, I had a, a, a guy a couple of years from retirement. He's like, oh, I want to pay off my mortgage. I'm like, well, how much is it? Oh, he's like, well, I just refinanced 50,000. My house is worth 400. I refinanced 50,000. I'm like, oh, well, what's the rate? He's like 2.75%. I'm like, you're never going to pay that money off. I'm yeah. like, the banks would love it if you would pay that off. Because guess what? They're making 7% mortgages right now. So, you know, so there's a right time to use debt, wrong time to use debt. Well, so. debt, debt to me is interesting because debt can mean very different things to very different people as right. well as businesses <clears throat> who under the law are considered people, which blows my mind. That's a conversation right. for another day. So like debt, I have student loan debt. I don't have much credit card debt. I managed to pay it off, but debt is the biggest problem young people face in this country yep. because they have... I don't know if it's record low savings, but at least in the past year, savings has plummeted, but credit card debt has skyrocketed with inflation. So they have all this debt. Uh, they go into jobs who don't want to pay them well, so they're leaving right. their jobs. Um, and it's just like this, this, the economy, this doesn't, who does it work for? Who does the economy actually work for with debt, even with debt in particular? Because with debt to a business is very valuable. Like Elon Musk just bought Twitter. Guess oh, yeah. what? He bought all of that debt. Right. So whoever, whoever had that debt no longer has that debt. Like as a business owner, I have been told debt is very valuable to you. But as an individual, debt is your worst case scenario. Right. So how does that make sense? How can like, because there's the idea of perceived wealth, right? Your perceived value, like your company is worth X, your actual value, but your perceived value is worth this. In right. America, perceived value is more important than your actual value, which blows my mind. Right. Like, how does how does all that work? Like, how can debt be so valuable? And why is perceived value even a real thing? Right. Well, I think to answer your question, the number one thing I keep coming back to people, and then we can get into the economy about the uh, you know about this too, is it's all about cash flow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Cash flow is king. If you start a company and you know. You're, you have little or no cash flow and you have all kinds of debt, guess what? You're going to be going out of business you know, right. sooner rather than later. Yeah. And, and again, this is where I talk about the right and the wrong use of debt. You know, If you're a company and you see an opportunity in a marketplace and you're expanding and you're increasing your cash flow, uh, you, you know, that's a good use of debt and that's a good thing to be doing you know, by using debt in that particular way. Well, it comes down to people as well and, you know, this is the whole student loan debate, and I don't, I, I don't want to get too in the weeds on it, but, you know, there, there's a lot of people that are looking, okay, I got a degree, I took on the student loan, but again, it becomes an exercise in what's the cost versus value, you know, if, and again, I'm not trying to pass judgment, but if you have a degree in humanities and it costs you $120,000 a year and you're $120,000 in debt, was that a good decision to make? Meanwhile, you know, the, the good thing about the U.S. economy right now is that, you know, there are plenty of jobs out there. I mean, you know, this is why I, I have a problem with people talking about, hey, we're going to be going into a recession in 2023. I mean, one of the problems I have about the media 
is the media 24 seven beats the heck out of people. Like it's the worst economy ever. It's worse. No, no, it's not that, but let's get back to cash flow for a second. If you have a job and you get laid off and you can find another job, that's great. And many times you can find a job at a higher paying amount. Well, that's even better. If, if you get laid off and you can't find a job, then it's a recession. But again, you know, comes back to what are you doing with debt? If you took on student loan debt to get a degree to make more money, that's great. Um, you know, and that, that's what you want to do. But again, to your point about companies, you know, people have to think about themselves as their own little company. And so mm-hmm. if you took on a whole bunch of student debt for a humanities degree and you can't make any money with it, that would, that'd be like a company opening up a division, you know, that, that this company, what they do is they sell, you know, iron ore widgets and then they decide to open up a division selling ice cream and they can't make any money. So, I mean, sometimes you have to use the analogy of the absurd, but you know, that's literally what it is. So, you know, that's what we're trying to, I'm trying to get young people to understand, but again, early on in your career, you're going to have more debt because you're trying to improve yourself. You're trying to get education so that you become a more valuable member of society and be able to make more money. So, and, But a lot of those debts are just never going to be paid off. Like there's people out there who are collecting Social Security, but it's getting docked because they have student debt. Right. Like That's absurd to me. It's just yeah. it's crazy. I mean, there's a lot of underlying issues to what caused that, you know, government policies, college exploitation, this, that, and the other. You know, that's a whole long conversation, but I want to go back to jobs. So you said, you know, there's a high job market right now, and the unemployment numbers are what they are. So you have the unemployment number, right? right? Um, and that's calculated by, you know, who is in the workforce looking for work. You know, I was unemployed um, in 2018. I was unemployed the, almost the entire year. I was unemployed for actually almost a full year. I was employed, unemployed for 10 months. After six months, I was still looking for a job but I was taken out of the unemployment data because they just stopped counting me. So one, that data is completely skewed. It doesn't make any sense. It leaves out a big portion of people. I think they do it for for seniors, people who retire, which that makes sense. But it doesn't doesn't separate young people who just can't find a job. And even if they do find a job, I saw a study recently that most people in the United States, it's close to 50%, need two jobs just to make the bare minimum ends meet. So you have a full-time job and a part-time job just to make the bare minimum. So that number, that unemployment number, doesn't include the quality of the jobs and the payment that are in those jobs. So when you have CNBC saying the unemployment numbers are low, the economy is great, I'm calling bullshit because the pay isn't good and people need two jobs in this country just to survive to pay off debt they can't pay back. Right. So what, 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 like, how do you, how do you unwind that huge knot I tied up for you. Yeah. Well, so there's two parts of the, the, the jobs numbers. There's yeah. the people that make stuff and then there's the service that people that, you know, do stuff. Right. And so ever since COVID, we shut the economy down. We are living, I mean, somebody's going to write a book about this in 10 years. They always write books 10 years after we are living in, you are living through one of the, the biggest economic experiments in history. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Never shut our economy down. So think about it. You shut your economy down, and I'm not going to get political, two weeks to fly, whatever. Um, But, you know, so you shut your economy down. The number one fear back in March of 2020 was that we were going to go into a depression. 
Mm -hmm. uh, and so the government steps up and says, hey, you know what? Uh, we have electronic access to everybody's bank accounts now. How about if we start shooting money into their bank accounts so they can buy food, et cetera? I think that was actually a, a positive part of the experiment. Um, the negative part of the experiment was they shot thousands of dollars into everybody's accounts. You know, they, they really, and this goes into our talk about inflation. So, you you know, inflation is, you know, too much money chasing too few goods and services. Well, guess what? You know, we had all kinds of money chasing too few goods because everybody was sitting around clicking on Amazon, doing that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so there was a shortage of goods. Well, now in the last 14 to 16 months, supply chains have healed. You know, if you order something, it, it you know, gets delivered in time. So the, the, the making the stuff part of the economy, I feel is fully healed. It's the service side of the economy that is not healed yet. The bartenders, the waitresses, et cetera. But to your point, you know, you know what people and and owners are beginning to understand is that you got to pay people. You can no longer and and you know whether it's politically right or, or wrong. You know, setting the minimum wage. What what businesses are finding out is you got to pay people a certain amount of money to show up now. Uh, and and that's actually a good thing because you know my thesis is that inflation and wages were kind of artificially held down for about a 10-year period of time. Longer than probably that. 2008. <laughs> longer, longer than that, for sure. Yeah, you know, from probably 2008 to 2018. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, 19, the economy was really starting to take off and people were like, oh, we got to start paying people more. Well, then in 20, you had a hiccup. Everybody sat home. And then all of a sudden, 2021, people were like, whoa, wait a minute. We need that worker, that worker, and that worker. We're going to pay him 20 grand a year, 30. So you, got, you had a bidding war, you know, like you do in the NFL, for, you know, a good, you know, athlete, people are like, we got to do that. And, and so I think we're still in that wage adjustment period of time. Um, and, and I think what it's doing is, you know, if you work hard, you got to, you know, a, a good education, you understand, you know, where you're going and you're adding value, companies are going to be like, we got to pay you. Because I always tell people, if you're running a billion dollar company and you've got 10 people on a team that's in charge of a hundred million dollar budget, you're going to make sure you got really good people and you're paying them enough because you've got all this capital at risk if something screws up. And I think, you know, that's what's happening now. And I think the good news for your generation is that a lot of the older workers, COVID, they got out of the workforce and they're getting back into the workforce because they're bored, they need money, whatever. But there's all these businesses out there that are looking to hire the next generation of managers, project managers, sales, whatever it is, because it's really starting to thin out at the top. And I, I think, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of young people that are going to have a lot of opportunity in the next 10 years. I hope so. I, <laughs> I really do. I mean, I, we're definitely in a transition period as as an economy as well as a nation you know we were calling this on election day and god <coughs> only knows what's going to happen in the next few weeks um but with like yeah i think people need to re reorient how they view what a, a wage is what a salary yeah. is to me yeah. it's income you know but you as a business owner what is a salary to you it's a cost right it's a cost to your business so when you see costs in you know 
production going up. You have inflation for food going up. Like if you're running a business, operational costs are going up. It only makes sense that wages are also going to go up because it is a cost to your business. Yep. But it's when when people want wages or they want to unionize or they want just just more money, we're seen as lazy. We don't want to work. And don't get me wrong, people in my generation, law, you are lazy and don't want to work. <clears throat> but a lot of people are like me who just live the hustle. Right. There's a lot of people who work harder than me and live the hustle. People work two, three jobs plus a famous on TikTok, living the hustle. Like, yeah, there's a lot of problems in my generation, but we are arguably the hardest working generation with the least amount of hope to do it. Well, uh, that's why, uh, you know, I'm going back to the, the, the 1980s. One of the themes that I have, you know, for the 80s is, uh, you know, s- some people may not knew, know who this is. My 16 year old daughter didn't know who this was. I, it's Madonna. I, that's Madonna. Yeah, that's I was, Madonna. That's, I don't know why I was going to get Cindy Lauper. <laughs> right, that's the 80s Madonna. And my 16-year-old daughter comes in and she's like, Dad, who's that? I'm like, it's Madonna. Well, I, I think, you know, one of the values of dealing with somebody with experience like myself is that I lived through the 80s. And there are scary, Will, there are scary parallels between 2022 mm-hmm. and 1982. As well as 2008 and, with the housing market. Yeah, and, and so you know, flashing back to the early 1980s, we were coming off the 70s, which were not good. Uh, Oil embargo, manufacturing was down, things weren't really good. Well, all of a sudden, in the early 1980s, there was something out there called a computer and computers started to come onto the scene and, you know, Mm -hmm. technology exploded onto the scene. And, you know, so what I'm trying to tell people is that we're going back to the 1980s. And when I say in the 1980s, I'm like, the 80s were characterized by high inflation, high energy prices, and high interest rates. And it turned out to be one of the best decades for stocks out there. Why? Because there was technological innovation going on. So one of my theses right now is that we are going to experience a revolution in healthcare. And this is where some of the business opportunities are uh, in the next 10 years that is going to make uh, antibiotics look like a Band-Aid. And, and, and what I mean by that uh, is, you know, I, I understand where you're coming from. Like, how are we going to get out of this? And I'm offering healthcare as one of them because there's a three areas of healthcare that I'm really focused on. Uh, you know, number one uh, is the cure for cancer. You, you know, the people I talk to in the biotech area believe that cancer is going to be cured in the next five to seven years. Now, imagine what this is. And I'm going to do a circle back here. Uh, in a second, uh, you know, with all this, but so you cure cancer. Okay. That's great. The second area is the next generation of inflammatory drugs. So uh, you can take an ibuprofen or somebody my age uh, can take a shot of tequila or some bourbon Uh, that works (laughs) the same way. Um, And then the third thing is Alzheimer's. Um, And and so what's happening is that you solve those problems in the next 10 years. Guess what? You're going to get people in their fifties, sixties, and seventies living into their 80s and 90s. Now, that sounds like a bad thing, but it's really not because it provides a lot of business opportunities for younger people out there is really what it ends up doing. So I'm looking for ways, like I said, like in the 80s, the way we got out of the malaise of the 70s was the technology, the next generation, the the, the start of, of the technology boom. I'm thinking that the way we get out of this malaise, potential malaise that we're having, and again, you got to remember, we're still reopening our economy, getting back to normal, whatever that is. I think it's going to be the revolution in healthcare the next 10, 15 years. 
Well, we are America. That is is a capitalist society, and yep. we are the we are the forerunners of innovation. So, if anyone's going to figure out a way, it really is the millennials and Gen Z. They're going to figure something out. I yeah. don't know if it's healthcare because I th- honestly I think healthcare is way too corrupt. Um, as as an as an industry with the government and just as as powerful as they are, like take the take the vaccines for example, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the latest batch of COVID vaccines, the Pfizer upped the price. It was originally $30. Actually, I was going to ask you this or ask someone this, right? Because Pfizer is a publicly traded company, mm-hmm. right? They need they, they made $100 billion, that's not an exaggeration, mm-hmm. off the vaccine last year. Now, they have quarterly earnings that they would reach their shareholders and their, and their whoever, their board. How are they going to reach those numbers? It's going to be an inevitable dip, right? You'd think. Well, not really because – um, with the vaccine latest boosters who they're recommending for, I think, six months and up. Now, I don't want to get into the debate of whether that's necessary right. or not, just the economics of it. They upped the, the, the price of the doses from the government from $30 to $130. Mm-hmm. So they're price gouging yep. to inflate their economy, the bubble. Yeah. So I don't know how healthcare is going to be innovative when you can't cut off that corruption, the price gouging for medication, insulin, is a big problem. People can't afford insulin. There's stories all over the country of the United States of people rationing insulin when the Canada and the UK or anywhere in Europe it costs like thirty dollars. Here it costs like a thousand. I don't know if it's a thousand, but it's, you know it's crazy. Right. So right. how how do you fight that corruption? Yeah, I I think well just to backtrack a second. Uh, that's one of the things that we're doing at our shop. We run a biotech small bio. You know we look at these small biotech companies. And the reason why is because if you're a big pharma company, you don't want to spend a couple billion dollars developing the next generation of drugs. Right. So these small pharma companies uh, are you know, doing phase one, phase two, and all of a sudden something looks promising and boom, they get bought out. So you're, you're absolutely correct. So I, pharma- I, think, I think you hit the nail on the head though. That's, that's the problem. There's no competition because they're going to get bought out. Right. And then, well, it's, and then it's a monopoly. It, well, it, but to your point, so there was literally about $500 billion made. I mean, again, you, you go back and re- rewrite history, this whole COVID thing, it, so, you know, and I don't want to get like too, uh, you know, back in history, but, you know, the moon landing, you know, getting a man on the moon sparked, you know, incredible technological innovation, carbon fiber, et cetera, that whole thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm always looking for good that comes out of like, you know, kind of bad situations like, you know, forcing people to get vaccines, et cetera. The good that came out of it is we're leapfrogging in technology on the medical standpoint. I agree wholeheartedly with you that, you know, these companies, you know, there's no question about it. Uh, It's a monopoly, but I do think as the population ages and votes, there's going to be a big pushback coming in healthcare the next couple of years. Uh, It's already started. Uh, and I think it's going to do nothing but accelerate because, again, there's nothing more visceral or, you know, inflammatory to somebody who's older saying you can't get that drug. And if you're, you know, a politician and you're doing something with a pharma company and people can't get a drug, guess what? You could end up losing, you know, they'll vote you out or they'll change the system. Now, I'm not. I, I'm not, you know, Pollyannish and think it's going to change overnight. 
But yeah. I do think it takes a long the perf- time. Yeah, I do think the perfect storm is kind of coming that you have a baby boom generation that's aging. They're experiencing higher drug costs and they're pushing back going, hey man, no moss, no moss. Uh, is it going to happen next week, next month, next year? Probably not. But I, I do think uh, that's not, you know, one of the top agenda items once we get past like everything else out there. Well, I hope so, but I'm I'm going to be the ever skeptic and the pessimist here because what do you buy with a hundred billion dollars? Yeah. Well, you buy the government and you buy the media that covers you. Right. Like seventy percent of news, cable news advertisements are from are from big pharma. So yeah, that's yeah. you know it's the the corruption in this economy is just it's too on the nose, it's too out in the open, and it's too blatant. So I'm going to bring you to my my monopoly my my monopoly analogy because essentially what is capitalism we live in a capitalist society at least on paper but what does that mean essentially in the most basic sense it's a game of monopoly you go around the board you collect income you buy properties and eventually one person wins so how do you win the game of monopoly well you either just one one person or a small group of people own everything two before you get there you break it up and start over or three you flip the board So I have a big fear that we're just going to skip number, skip number two for sure. We're not going to start over and break anything up. Uh, We're never going to admit number one because it's never going to happen. I fear we're going to flip the board. And when you flip the board, that's chaos for everybody. Because once that board is flipped, you never want to clean it up. I've, let me tell you, Chris, when I was a kid, me and my brother played a game of Monopoly. It's actually the last game of Monopoly I actually played. Probably 11 years old. And my brother was just wiping the floor with me. And his brother Frank came, and his friend Frank came over, and we were just hanging out, and like they're both making fun of me. I eventually just go, F this, flip the board. <laughs> and this just we didn't clean up until my dad came and was like, Who made this mess? Me. I cleaned it up. But I'll tell you, Chris, just a few weeks ago, my dad was cleaning the living room. He found him, he found a hotel underneath the radio. <laughs> so I have a big fear that. The, the young people, my generation, get so fed up with this corruption, so fed up with this system, we're going to flip the board. And there's no going back once the board is flipped. Yeah, I mean, that's that's always been the danger throughout history. Um, and, you know, I always say what happens. And again, I go back, you know, just to give you some historical perspective. I mean, I hate to say this, but the the, the children of the 60s that were protesting and burning their bras and, mm-hmm. you know, doing the whole thing. Guess who's running the country it's now? Them. That's the great irony. Yeah. That's the and great irony. And honestly, Chris, now these Gen Zers who are just protesting on TikTok or, you know, gluing their hands to paintings and throwing right. mashed potatoes on them, they're going to grow up and they're going to do the exact same thing. Yeah, exactly. You're, you're exactly right. I mean, pretty soon you're like, hey, I'm not part of the establishment. I'm anti Then you become part of the establishment. You get in a comfortable house. You drive a nice car. Uh, eat at good restaurants and you're like, wow, man, do I really want to go back and do that? I mean, you know, unfortunately people are always looking for comfort, but back to your, your point about capitalism and, you know, this was something that we saw. And I, I, I truly believe that anybody between the ages of 16 and 30, you could see when you become establishment, when they become establishment, a hard swing Towards libertarianism, libertarianism, uh, becoming libertarianism. Yes, libertarianism. Right. Say that fast three times. And the reason being is 
You got kids that had to wear masks. They had to, you know, conform at school. They had to do all these things that were put on them, you know, without them, you know, being able to say, I don't want to do that. And so to me, that's actually hope because Mm. some of the things that you're saying, you know, right now you got big government knee deep in pharma, waist deep in pharma. And what we saw during 2020 was the government saying who could stay open and who would be closed. Target could stay open, but the mom and pop shop would be closed. So that image is burned into young people's minds going, why is the government dictating who's going to be? Well, it was a, it was a national health scare. Well, okay, let's really dive into the, what was it a national health? I, I, it's not going to be a big debate, but I'm just, I'm trying to make the point that you could have a whole bunch of people that are, go back to individual rights. I mean, this country was founded, again, I don't want to sound like a historian, it was founded on you know rights of the individual, and they kind of got squeezed, those rights. Young people saw those rights being squeezed, and now you know younger people are going, hey, you know what, I never want to go through that again, I never want to have that happen again, what can I do to make a difference? And so I think it's actually laying the groundwork. I mean, you know, again, I hear my older clients going, it's the demise of civilization. You know, they see a TikTok that their, you know, grandchild, you know, show them. They're like, what are people doing? And I'm like, well, maybe what they're doing is they're communicating their displeasure with what's going on. And, oh, yeah, by the way, like, for example, you're right. You know, I, I, uh, I'm i on calls all the time. Uh, and we'll get back to what I do all day. Uh, and one of the things I do all day is I try to talk to people a lot smarter than I am. And and I was on a, an election call, and it was funny because these election pollsters are running scared because people don't have landlines anymore. Mm-hmm. They got cell phones. Um, you know, they don't have traditional TV anymore. Uh, they're they're you know streaming. Uh, you know, just I've noticed in the last year or so, I'm getting more political texts than I ever have, and so the pollsters are running scared, going well, we don't know who's going to win and who's going to lose. And I'm like, that's not really a bad thing. You know, what it really makes people do is like, okay, I got to get out and vote, you know? And, and, and so I think, you know, that's also a positive in the long run too, because you're getting more and more people involved in the process, which you got to be involved. So. I mean, you do got to be involved, but you know, the whole talk about democracy is really democratic. If you only have two options, like even the idea of a third option is can't exist. Like, no, you're you crazy. Right. So it's like, right. you know, it was, I think it was Bill Hicks said you could have 20 options in Syria. We got two political parties. Yeah. Uh, and they're both bought and paid for by the same people. Right. You know, well, Wall, Wall, Street, why... Wall Street buys them off. You know, you yeah. know, Democrats have the House and Senate as of recording this, but you know, they had mansion and cinema screw thing up. You know, it's right. like, it's a rotating villain theory. Yeah. Right. Oh, it's yeah. A, no, you're, yeah, well, said, you can't you can't vote your way out of economic collapse. I right. I just I don't believe that. At right? All. No, no, I I, I agree hundred uh, percent. And and I also think that you know politicians like NASCAR, you know, have sponsors on the car. Politicians should have sponsors on. Yeah. And I mean, you know, you now have the power of the internet. Uh, every politician should you know who you're sponsored by or who's contributed to your political campaign, et cetera. So people are like, no, oh yeah, you were, okay, I, I understand that. Now I know where you're coming from, you know, but one of the things that I'm trying to, you know, tell my clients right now is that, you know, don't expect with this midterm election, any kind of radical change. No, it's going to be, um, it's we're, we're stuck in the status quo for a very, very long time. 
Yeah. And then change, change is incremental. Change is the, right. the, the, the wheels of progress roll very, very slowly. Yeah. It's always, it's always been like that, right? Oh, it's, yeah. it's always been like that. It's always going to be like that. But if you're not too careful, it does come radical change. If you don't want radical change, because that's when the board gets right. flipped. Right. Right. Well, you want it to go thing, slow but steady. Yeah. The probably the smartest thing, uh, you know, I went to University of Minnesota, I'll give a plug for them. But we had a lot of foreign students coming back in the early 80s uh, because we were an agricultural uh, campus. And so we had a lot of students from South uh, America, Africa. They were coming over trying to understand the technology to grow their own food, et cetera. And it was really cool because if you think about it, back in the 80s, South America was not a uh, you know, bread basket like it is now, and neither was Africa, which they've made some improvements. But I'll never forget uh, a student from Venezuela. Uh, and, and, you know, he, we were talking politics. And he's like, you Americans think politics are a straight line. You've got the left, you've got the right. He's like, politics are really a circle. He's like, at some point, you know, the conservative side or the liberal side gets so radical or doesn't want change or whatever that they're both literally doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. I'm almost wondering if that's not where we are right now. Where no, it, it definitely is. You, you, we, can, you, come can back so, the, you can go so far left, you end up being right. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and I'm wondering about that. And one of the things I, I, I always have a big believer, and I don't want to sound too much like a cheerleader of the American population, but people know what's going on. And mm-hmm. if they see things skewing too far one way, they subconsciously uh, you know, move back the other way. Uh, and I, I actually think that you're going to start to see, uh, you, you know, more centrist policies, more centrist verbiage out there. I think it's long overdue. Um, and, and I actually think that's a good thing because once again, you can't, you, you know, you can't accomplish anything if you're too extreme on the right or too extreme on the left. People just tune it out, shut it off. But if, if people start moving towards the center, then people are like, okay, I can agree with that view, or I can agree with that view, or okay, here's what we should do. Uh, and and I, think, I, I think we're on the cusp of that right now. We, so. we are, like most people, like I have, I have no idea your politics. I have no idea what you registered as, honestly, doesn't matter. Um, right. But I think most people are level-headed in the center, right? The fringes, what you see online is what gets amplified. Yep. But those people <clears throat> in the center need to be elected. They need to right. get to those positions. And you have that establishment that pushes them down so hard and beats them down so hard. It's next to impossible to get them elected. Like there is such a split between like, you know, people like to say there's, there's, there's a division between left and right, black and white. Right. The division in this country is rich and poor. Yeah. That is the right. division. That is the straight right. up division in this country. People who are in charge are not of the people by the people for the people. Because they're all loaded. They're all rich and they're all corrupt. And the, the biggest problem I see with the economy is that it's very hard for someone like me who makes about sixty, seventy thousand dollars a year in New York, nonetheless, to be represented in right. in financial conversation. Like you look at CNBC, right? They're they're talking about charts and businesses and news and finance and the state of the economy. And I go, okay, what do those numbers actually reflect? Do they reflect Main Street right. or do they reflect Wall Street? Right. And what, do, what does the people in charge, the leaders of this country and the leaders of the free market, care more about Main Street or Wall Street? So what does economic data actually present and what does a strong economy actually mean? 
Because if it's strong for Wall Street, that doesn't mean it's strong for Main Street. And in, in the most important part, I think you would agree with me on this, the most important part of a capitalistic society is the strength of the middle class. Correct. Yep. So how, again, untie that knot for me. Because I, I, I go, I, I'm going on rants here and I apologize because I'm trying to ask no, a question. No, no, this, this is all good stuff. But, but so like I, you, 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 you have, you have a, 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 the mainstream and the, the powerful not representing the people through their elections and through how they talk about the economy because they focus so much on businesses, Wall Street, as opposed to Main Street. How, how do you write that wrong? Well, I, I think what's happening, and, and this is why, you know, again, I don't want to be sound like I'm a cheerleader for the United States of America, but literally, this is one of the few countries in the world where you can literally go from nothing mm. and create a business worth 10 million, 100 million, a billion dollars, whatever the case may be. And so everybody thinks that there's only so much of a pie out there. And that if if I'm making more money, that means you're making less money. And, and, and that's totally not true. It's you know, if you're running a country or excuse me, a company that's doing well, you're dragging your people along. And, and that's actually what ended up happening, you know, for the last 15 years in Silicon Valley. I mean, look at the number of Silicon Valley billionaires, millionaires that were made, you know, as as tech, you know, rippled through and we went through 2.0, 3.0, you know, of tech, you know, California would not be the economic powerhouse it is now if it wasn't really for Silicon Valley. And I think that's what's going to happen, you know, because you're exactly right. Wall Street can't do well if Main Street isn't doing well. And I and and eventually, you know, to circle back about my whole libertarianism streak of, you know, people between the ages of 20 and 30 is I think people like yourself are going to be like, hey, man, I don't need you. Just let me do my thing. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I need less government oversight, yep. less taxation. Yep. You know, let me start my business. Let me run it. Let me provide a service. If I'm providing a good service, I should get paid, you know, and, and, and I think that's really where, what we're kind of on the cusp of right now is people are beginning to realize that, you know, government's too big. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so what do you do to bring government back down? I mean, I was thinking about this the other day. I mean, our founding fathers, uh, you know, they, they would only have, I mean, you know, I'm in Allentown, Pennsylvania, stone's throw from Philadelphia and the Liberty Bell. Our founding fathers, they would only be, Congress is only in session in the wintertime. Why? Because in the summertime, you had to plant your crops, you know, tend to your animals, grow. You got to be other people. Yeah, other people. <laughs> and, and so now you got Congress. And, and, and I really think, you know, that people are beginning to look at, uh, you know, what's going on out there in the economy. And again, I don't want to get political, but you know, a, a strong, I mean, look what's happening over in England, uh, you know, fr from a energy standpoint, mm -hmm. your energy policy dictates radically how well your economy is going to do and affect, you know, people in the middle class, et cetera. And if your energy, pro you know, policy is to outsource your energy to a hostile nation, that wasn't such a good idea, was it? You know, so I, I think people are beginning to look at that and go, whoa, wait a minute. You know what am I doing? So, Chris, I do, I do love your optimism. I do, I love it. It, it makes, it does make me feel really good. But I, I gotta, I gotta bring some realism into you a little bit, uh, at least from my perspective. So, trickle, trickle down economics, does it work? Because you know, yes, that's true. Since the tech era, people have, we have had more millionaires and billionaires than ever before. That's true. 
That's true. People have become more successful. The American dream isn't dead. It's definitely evolving. It's hard to get, but it's not as simple as it used to be. Opportunity is there, but it doesn't trickle down. At least if it does, not enough. Because if it did trickle down, all those companies wouldn't have people fleeing them in droves. You wouldn't see these labor movements going crazy. And to the point, even um, like Starbucks, Starbucks workers are trying to unionize. Wells Fargo, um, Amazon, like it's crazy. That gives me hope more than anything, the labor movement, because that's what happened in the 1930s with Vanderbilt and Carnegie yeah. um, and Ford. When they were too big, the people took the power back. Yeah. And that does give me hope. But then again, you have Starbucks union busing like crazy. And to Biden's credit, that uh, the NLRB, they're better than most have been recently. So there is hope there. But it even so, that's getting squeezed. That's getting pushed down. And the middle class used to always have more money than the, than the upper echelon. Right. I don't know if that's true anymore. Because, like, say in the 70s when the economy collapsed, right, you got to raise taxes. Who do you do it on? The middle class because yeah. there's more – like, even though they make less money in, a giant, the money in a giant pool, that's yeah. where all the money is. I don't know if that's true anymore. I, I, I still – it is. I've seen the numbers, and, you know, the middle class still is where all the money is. So how, uh, how do they calculate those numbers? Well, they, they look at the different tax brackets, and, you know, w- one of the things just to add some optimism back to us is that we haven't had a tax increase in two and a half years. And one of the other things that's happened, and uh, again, inflation, you know, we we have some hot inflation. I believe it's going to cool off, but I still believe we're above trend on inflation for probably the next 10 years. But the other thing is the tax brackets are opening up because they're adjusting them for inflation. So, you know, if people make that extra dollar, it's it you know you got to make a lot of extra dollars to get taxed at the next higher mm-hmm. rate. So you know there's some good things you know that are going on from that standpoint. Uh, you know, but but to your point as well, I mean I mean that's why you know when you look at like a country's energy policy, I mean you know every dollar in gas you know costs a family of four you know three to five thousand dollars. So. If you got a good oh energy God. policy, you can lower costs for people and they can afford, you know, they, they, they have more money in their pockets. And I think, you know, people have really in the last 18 months seen this and they're like, whoa, wait a minute, you know, are we really heading in the right direction by doing what we're doing? I mean, uh, you know, I, I again, just to let you know what I do every day uh, is I'm on a lot of calls looking at long-term trends and, you know, the, the, the EV long-term trend, everybody's like, oh yeah, everybody's gonna go to electric vehicles. And there's a very, very good money manager. I've used him for 15 years with my client's money. And he did a very deep dive the last year about the total replacement uh, of cars and the life cycle and et cetera. And he's like, people are under the impression that we're going to go EV in the next 10 years. He's like, it's going to take, yeah. (laughs) Not a a goddamn chance. Yeah. It's going to take 50 to 60 years to get out there. And And not not only that, how do you get the batteries? How do you make the batteries with fossil fuels? How do you get, how do you dig the nickel out of the ground with fossil fuels? Yeah. Like I I do, I do fully support um, investing in EV. I, I support investing in nuclear because that's just another market to compete with the oil, to bring the cost down. Yeah. Well, back, back to your point. You need both. You need all of them. You need to create the marketplace. You got to create the market. You're seeing what's going on in the UK and all of a sudden people are saying, well, wait a minute, 
we need a portfolio of energy. We need yeah, fossil exactly. fuel, renewable, nuclear. Uh, we need a portfolio because if you concentrate all your dollars on one area or the other, and that's what's happened is that there's been less money spent, uh, you, you know, in, in the fossil fuel area the last 10 years, uh, you know, it's gone to, you know, renewables. Uh, it, it ain't going to happen. I mean, our infrastructure is just not there. You know, uh, for example, for every EV, if you buy an EV for your house, it increased your electricity use by 50%. Two EVs in your house, two, two electric vehicles, you would double the electricity that your house uses. Yeah. Our electric grid, look what happened in Dallas, you know, down in Texas, et cetera. They can't California, handle it. So, California yeah, as well. So I, I, I think what's happening is people are sitting back going, wait a minute, you know, we need a portfolio of energy. We need to, who does energy really affect? It affects the middle class because costs have gone up, uh, you know, and it's part of inflation. So what do we do to do this? Well, we got to talk about our infrastructure. Uh, you know, there's, you know, there's that conversation that is, is uh, subliminally happening. I think it's got to be out there a lot more. Like, what do we do, you know, to get the price of, you know, gasoline back down? Because that's what you and I pay at the pump every day. Well, I, I have an idea. Because um, I, I, I agree with you 100%. You know, the, the, that's a piece of the puzzle as to why yeah. gas prices are so high. Supply chain is another reason why gas prices are so high. But gas prices are also so high because it's a monopoly. It's also monopoly. Like, they're price gouging. They are price gouging. They have admitted they are price gouging. Well, uh, because, I, I'll, and I'll, because they yeah, can't take the other side. Yeah, that, 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 it's not so much price gouging. I, and, and again, I've done a deep dive on the energy sector. Okay. Uh, it is the best performing sector this year. And one of the things that the energy companies used to do is they'd be like, drill, baby, drill, 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 drill. And they were drilling all the time. And what was happening is they were just spending so much money on capital that you as the shareholder were sitting back here going, wait a minute, you're spending all this money on capital. It, it would be like building a, a, a car facility to produce a million cars mm -hmm. when you're only driving a thousand cars. So they were wildly overspending on capital. And then you got some shareholders that came back and said, wait a minute, you can't be spending willy nilly. We need to get some payback for the capital that we're risking by investing in your oil company, uh, you know, and so now you're in a situation the last five years where they're actually being the stewards of their capital. The problem with that is that you're right. I mean, you know, then prices of their product have gone up and we're paying for the price of the product. Now I was on the call, uh, the Exxon Mobil call, and you know, uh, there's a lot of things in the work. So one of the things that, you know, just to talk about gasoline prices, what ended up happening, created a perfect storm. You shut down the refineries. You sent all the workers home because of COVID. Nobody was really driving their cars. Well, then they started driving their cars again. It takes anywhere from six months to a not to nine months to get the refineries back up because they got to be uh, re-permitted. Uh, they've got to be tested. If you're uh, not to get into how gasoline made, but basically you're you know boiling stuff at super high temperatures and pressure. You've got to test all those systems because you don't want to flip the switch, turn it on, and have the place you know, blow up on you. So there's a ramp up time to start those factories, gasoline factories up, which they, which happened. Well, you know, the, 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 the uh, CEO of Exxon was like, people have to understand. We also had a moratorium on refineries for about three years 
He's like, in by 2023, 2024, there's three major refineries that are coming on that are going to produce more, you know, gasoline, diesel fuel, et cetera. So we're, we're kind of in that bridge mode. Um, and, and, you know, the question is, if you really wanted to bring down the price of energy, uh, what's the number one thing big companies love? Tax cuts. You got it. Tax, tax cuts. Exactly. So, well, that, that, that is, okay. So that's, that's actually, that's a great point. Taxes. Um, actually I do, I do want to get to taxes, but I want to ask one quick question on oil. Um, they, I do want to also make note, they, a price of barrel, a price of a barrel of oil, excuse me to say, was negative in 2020. Yep. Right. So they yep. lost, they lost so much money. It yep. makes sense. They need to make that money back. Right. Yeah. That, that's just, like, again, supply, demand and supply chain. Right. Mm-hmm. But how do you, how do you make sense that, you know, they got to do all this. They lost all the money and it's going to cost more to get it back. If it, with the inflation, shouldn't it cost more to produce? So it doesn't make sense that they also have record profits, all-time highs. Right. So how, how do they have all-time highs if the cost to make it is so much more? That, that, well, that's a question across the entire economy because there's a lot right. of corporations that have all-time highs, price hikes. Right. So how can you say that's not a form of price gouging? Well, if it costs more to produce and to get yeah. out there, you should see profit, but record profits? Like, how, do you, how, how does both of those things, polar opposites, happen at the same time? Well, the, the, the big thing in the oil industry is, again, they're not, spent, they're not burning through cash flow mm-hmm. like they were before, building new plant equipment, drilling, et cetera. You know, they, they've, they've pulled back their capital spending, you know, dramatically. And so they're now they're making more money, even if the labor costs are up. But I mean, you know, to drill an oil well, you know, costs about $10 million. And they were literally drilling thousands of oil wells and they're like, okay, we're not going to do that anymore because we already got thousands of oil wells out there. So we don't need to do that. So again, back to your point about debt, uh, you had oil companies issuing debt right and left having to service that debt because they were drilling and making plant and equipment, et cetera. Well, if you're not doing that and you don't need that much debt, well, then your profit ends up going up. And that's why they're having record profit because they're not issuing so much debt that they have to service. So I, I, you know, I think we saw this back in the eighties, like after the disaster of the seventies and the oil embargo, et cetera, Oil companies really took a huge hit, and then in the 80s, they came back pretty strong. But, you know, through the 2000s, oil companies, everybody wanted, and and this is what's fascinating about my job, is to watch the sector rotation, you know, from big cap and tech. Now we're going back to oil, you know, and, and, and you know, where the profits are. So, you know, that's really what I do all day is I'm, I'm looking at clients' portfolios and saying, okay, what kind of money manager do we want to hire? Are we value, you know, more value right now? And actually value tends to be overweighted in banks and energy, or do you want to be in growth, which is in, you know, technology stocks, et cetera. So, uh, you know, one of my other thesis is, is that, uh, you know, again, right now, I think technology is deeply oversold. We could have probably a vicious bounce over the next couple of months. But, you know, there's all, we see the same thing happen with investors. Investors get an idea and all this money goes to large cap growth core types of stocks. And one of my other theses is, is back in the 1980s, one of the best performing sectors was small mid cap stocks. Reason being is that if you're a company 
and you want to build a, you know, you're, you're like, hey, we need another division. It's going to cost us $2 billion to build this division. Well, wait a minute. We can buy that company for a billion. All of a sudden, one of the other earmarks of the 1980s was tremendous mergers and acquisitions. I think we're on the cusp of that again. I think you're going to see some companies merge that you will have never believed were going to merge. Um, and, and I think it's going to happen in the next couple of years because in an inflationary environment, it's cheaper to buy somebody yeah. than it is to build that plant and equipment is what it ends up being. And that's what kicked off the 1980s. I mean, you know, people need to Google Michael Milken, the junk bond king, because Michael Milken was like, hey, if I buy this company and I, you know, uh, for 40 cents on the dollar and I break it up, it's worth 120 cents on the dollar. Wow. All of a sudden you saw companies merging and, and you know, uh, getting together. And guess what? Beneficiary of that was a, a the shareholders and a lot of uh, the employees at the companies became rich overnight because they held employee stock and their company got bought out and all of a sudden their net worth doubled or tripled. But I think the other thing to do a circle back, which I learned from my sister-in-law, stand-up comedian, tell, tell the joke at the beginning, then you tell a long story, and then you come back to come the Come back joke. and you get the punchline. Right, you get the punchline. Um, I think one uh, why it's very important for people 18 to 35 is you're going to see the largest transference of wealth ever. I yeah. mean, the baby boomers are there's a, there's a, few, you know, a few trillion. Yep. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I, and, and we're seeing it already. I mean, uh, in our practice in the last two years, we've seen some major estates uh, end up getting transferred to, you know, much younger people. And it's a little scary. Of course, everybody does the same thing. The minute they get the money, they either buy a house, they improve their house, you know, but I, I keep telling these people, you have an opportunity here to set up the education for your kids and set up your retirement for the future too. Um, and, and I think this transference of wealth is, is, you know, people are really not focusing on that tidal wave that's been happening and it will do nothing but accelerate. But again, Here's a circle back. If we move politically more to the center, if we have more libertarianism from a political standpoint where people say, leave me alone, uh, if we have a portfolio of, of uh, energy rather than focusing on one particular energy you know, product out there, uh, I, I see nothing but upside. Okay. Well, it is, it is a little concerning that, you know, the only hope for – one of the big hopes for my generation is the previous generation die. I so, I, but that's it's like, okay, so they're going to have all this money, right? They're not going to really know what to do with it. They, they can get set up. Hopefully it's not too late. But then they don't have a foundation for themselves. So that's going to build a foundation for themselves. And then what will the generation after that? They're going to be no money to pass on to them. And the who's going to be there? You know, who knows? That's, yeah. that's too far down the line to speculate. Um. But I do want to talk about taxes, but first, on the topic of oil and gas, subsidies. I want yep. to, not specifically just about gas and oil subsidies, <clears throat> any type of subsidy, any type yep. of government subsidy to big tech, yep. whether it's big pharma, whether it's big oil. Um, subsidies to me sounds very, very uncapitalistic and very, very socialist. Yeah. So yeah. how can we be in, like we are, like I said, we're capitalism on paper. But you know, the more I, the more I look at it, the more I learn, the more I, I, I kind of like go down this road. It's like, are we capitalist or are we corporate socialist in an oligarchy? Right. Yeah. And yeah. the example is, you know, people like to say that the stimulus checks that we got fourteen hundred dollars over a year and a half ago 
cause all this inflation. But the government gives out billions of dollars yep. to oil companies. They give out billions of dollars to Big Pharma. They gave almost between 80 and $100 billion to Ukraine, but yep. that's not inflation. Yeah. That's not no, no. socialism. It's only yeah, socialism you, you, when you give money yeah. to the actual, to Main Street. But you give money to Wall Street when Obama yeah. bails out uh, Ford, that's not socialism. But yep. when you bail out, when you bail out me in Hoboken, New Jersey, ah, oh, you fucking socialist. Right. So yeah. square that, yeah. square that circle for me. How is how how are um, subsidies part of capitalism? Yeah, and and I agree with you 100. Uh, percent You know, from the standpoint, like you know, and again, I'm not cracking on green energy, but you know, we saw all these subsidies, you know, for green energy. And it turned out to be, was that the right thing to do? I mean, there was a couple of billion dollar companies that literally evaporated uh, when their solar panels didn't work, you know, whatever the case was. So you're right. It's a very slippery slope to come down to. But again, it's, it's, I'm going to flip it's, this. It's not capitalism. It's, it's, right. it's not I, free market. Yeah. I'm going to flip the script, though. Please. Because what the movement that I see happening, and again, positive things that have come out of COVID, um, you know, we all of a sudden realize wait a minute, why do we have stuff made over in China that's really important for the U.S. economy? Mm, semiconductors. Computers, yep. know, computers and computer chips. So I think we got the wind at our back because Intel is going to be dropping a $50 billion plant in Ohio. And all of a sudden you're seeing all these governors going, I want that. I yep. want that. I want that. <laughs> Who wants Which, jobs? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, and so the good trend about it is if you drop a $50 billion plant in, that's just not Intel. There's so many companies that support it around it, all the way down to the employees that move in, the home builders, the landscapers. And, and so, you know, again, I think what's positive is we've gone from this, we got to find the cheapest labor out there to, whoa, wait a minute, we got to protect our supply chain. And how do we do that? And we need to bring these jobs back because they're technology mm -hmm. jobs, which are very high paying jobs, number yep. one. But number two, you know, again, like the point I made about energy, you suddenly realize that your national security is based upon your energy policy and your technology policy. Uh, and, and so, you know, you're right. I mean, we're a capitalistic society with, you know, the different overlays on it, but young people, can that are you know paying attention and that's what i talk about all the time you got to pay attention well wait a minute if that's what they're doing that's a good thing how do i position myself you know to take advantage of that and that's really what it comes down to so. i mean yeah okay it, it creates jobs but you know hopefully they're good paying jobs most I mean if, if they're in the factory probably not but you know people up top it, there's gonna be a lot of good paying jobs there but even like how how can you convince a company. So say say we 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 drill baby drill and there's a massive influx of oil. Who's going to force the companies to keep it in house? Because we're we're one of the number right. one exporters of oil. Oh yeah. All oh, the yeah. oil we drill gets sold. All yep. the oil we buy comes from Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Well, at least yeah. no. I'm being hyperbolic. But right, right. so even <laughs> if we drill baby drill, what's to stop these companies from getting a better price overseas? You can't. Well, and, and I think that's what's going on right now is that there's a, 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 a huge economic war going on that we're seeing play out. And if you look at the Saudis, I mean, a lot of people don't realize this. I mean, the Saudis are the cheapest producer of oil on the globe. They have all yeah, they have so much oil. Yeah. And <laughs> you don't even know how much they have. Yeah. But the Saudis 
the real cost to the the Saudis need like $120 oil to keep all of their economic and social programs going on. The Saudis have realized this, that this new younger prince is trying to accelerate, like they need to diversify their portfolio. And, and so, you know, you've got this economic race going on. And, you know, as far as the United States goes, we got to pay attention. I mean, you know, who's trying to do what from an economic, you know, standpoint and where are they in the globe? Uh, but I agree with you 100% about, you know, for example, you know, and I don't want to sound like I'm centrist or a global centrist, but at some point, how much money do you give to other countries, you know, versus what you're giving here? And again, I think maybe this is going to be the political shift that happens the next couple of years. And this is a circle back, back to your generation. You know, you've seen all this money given out and you've seen the government give out all kinds of money. You know, how can we bend that spending curve? You'll you'll never you'll never pull how much the US, you know, government spends back dramatically. But yeah. what you can do is flatten. I mean, basically, US government spending has been a straight line up because of COVID and everything else. How do we it's get that up bent? before that too? Yeah. But but how do we get that bent, you know, to a flatter curve on spending, which helps with inflation? Uh, you know, keeps taxes low, et cetera. So I, I don't have the answer on that one. So. Yeah, well, Chris, I mean, these solutions, it sounds like it would be great for Main Street, but it's going to be bad for Wall Street because they make more money doing it this way. They don't, do they, do, like, we, we want this change as citizens, right. as a country, as a go right. rah, rah America, but they don't. It's not good for them. Uh, they, they, they're profit driven. Or, or, or how, how can we, as like as as policymakers incentivize them because right you know a pair of, a pair of shoes you can get it for four cents on the dollar overseas you can't beat that here we have labor laws right. like how do you incentivize American companies to not use overseas and do everything in house because in house is going to be infinitely more expensive. Uh, it, it is, but then I'm coming back to technology, and one of the things we haven't talked about is like some of the technology that's rapidly coming is 3d printing mm -hmm. i mean my friend has one. It's incredible the, what's that my friend has one he said it's incredible yeah i mean we are on the verge of mass customization and what i mean by that is rather than going on amazon clicking and buying something you might go on xyz website go i want that pair of shoes i want them in this color click 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 it's customized and it's at your door the next day yeah. and it's yeah. been made from an automation standpoint i mean that's that's what I'm excited about. Um, is that way you have something unique? It's different, uh, but the costs come down too. And again, you know whether it's healthcare that drives the U.S. economy and and you know a revolution in healthcare, uh, technology is a revolution. Uh, I mean, you know it's it's amazing. You know I keep telling people, uh, you, you know we have one of the most powerful you know handheld computers on the planet, literally yeah. in our hand. And, you know, you talk about opportunities, you know, you, you got, you have young people that can make 500 to a thousand dollars a weekend driving through neighborhoods, stopping at yard sales, buying something for 10 bucks, clicking, putting it on eBay or whatever the websites are and selling it and shipping it out. I mean, you know, again, I don't want to sound too Pollyannish, but you know, the opportunities that we have, I mean, yes, people are using this to record videos and TikToks and everything else like that. 
but you can literally run a business on your iPhone. Yep. Um, and, and so if you continue to lower the barriers to entry, Mm -hmm. you have mass customization, you know, guess what, you know, the labor costs may not be that big of an input or a challenge for people. So, I mean, I, I look at our own practice, we're an RIA firm and, you know, because of technology, we can easily run a couple of hundred million dollars. I mean, even 10 years ago, that would have been very difficult to do, but now it's, it's, it's easy. So. And even in general, so like um, they get these subsidies, whether you you can support them or you don't. And then they do stock buybacks. So I need stock buybacks explained to me because this is how I view them. I I view it as as in-house inflation because I see it as you're just going to pump up that bubble. Because if you're a company, right, you're, you're not doing so well, pandemic, recession, what have you, whatever. Your company's bad. Your stock price plummets. You get this government money. Your first instinct is to just buy back your stock. How is that making your business better? It's just making it's making it better on paper. Again, perceived value as opposed to actual value. So why are stock buybacks allowed? Because to well, me, it just inflates the bubble upon bubbles, which is just the US economy is made up, in my opinion, of a billion different kinds of bubbles. Right. But it's 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 a two-edged sword. Explain so- how. Okay, let's look at Meta or Facebook. In the last year, they've spent literally $200 billion on stock buybacks, and the stock has done nothing but go down. Yeah, so Maybe if they spent it on infrastructure. What's that? <laughs> Maybe if they spent it on actually improving their company instead of inflating their stock price. Yeah, exactly. It went, well, it went down because the money was misspent. Right, exactly. And, and that's my point. It's it's capital allocation. So yeah. how much capital you have as an individual or a company, how well you spend that capital. So if you're a chief financial officer of a company and you know what your sales are out for the next year, two years, or three years, you know what your costs are, and you're sitting there looking at your stock going, wow, man, uh, our stock is kind of cheap versus the next two to three years. You know what? Maybe we need to do some stock buybacks because that would be the best capital allocation we we can do. I don't agree with that all the time. I you know, maybe you should be allocating that capital for better software, new plant equipment, etc., but you got to understand a lot of these companies are driven by quarterly earnings and you know, what's the quarterly? And if you look at what's happened this year, you have companies that have made it on sales, missed a little bit on earnings and the stocks are getting hammered and it's they're like, "Hey, just stay with us because you know, we think we're good capital allocators. So, you know, stock buybacks, if you're a CFO and you're sitting there going, where am I going to allocate my capital? Okay, our stock is cheap right now. If you notice what happens, you don't really get stock buybacks when the stock market's at all-time highs. Most of the stock buybacks yeah. happen when stocks are depressed. In fact, you know, I, I remember, uh, you know, the global financial crisis of 2008, it was really brought on by the banks having to do something called mark to market of their portfolios that banks had. Now, I'm going to give a shout out to Brian Westbury, probably the best economist that you can follow on First Trust, but he identified mark to market accounting where what was happening during 2008 is the government came out and said if you're a bank, you've got to price your portfolio every day. Well, if banks and banks have many times illiquid securities, so the banks were sitting there going, oh my gosh, no, there's no bid on this. We got to price it down and down and down. Finally, the government said it, we're doing away with mark to market accounting. 
Well, the banks were like, whoa, okay, that means our portfolio is worth much more because we don't have to fire sale it out. And oh, by the way, our bank stock is worth much more. We're going to do some bank buybacks. And it literally saved uh, us from, you know, literally having a global financial meltdown slash depression. So, you know, again, there's a lot of- uh, Did it save it or did it delay it? Right. Well, did it kick that can? Did, did it kick right. the can down the road? Well, and and that's the other question. I mean, you, so, that's a question. You just know, it's impossible to know, right? Yeah. But or you know, I'm just playing devil's advocate. And, and again, you know, there's something called deflation. You know, we're experiencing the opposite. We're in, experiencing inflation right now. Deflation is when prices go down. And I had a, a fixed income manager one time. He gave me a great analogy. He's like, "Okay, you got a balloon. The balloon's blown up too big." Do you want to pop the balloon and have asset prices drop 70 to you know 80% or do you prick the balloon and have the balloon slowly come down and asset prices come down? And that's kind of what happened from 2008 to 2019. Yeah. And then you had this big scare like, oh, hey, 2020, we're shutting down the economy. Oh, wait, we're going to pump all kinds of money. We're going to blow it back up. I think you're right from the standpoint that a, and I'll go back another circle back to the beginning of our, our talk, is that we've never shut down our economy. We never opened it back up. We never pumped trillions of dollars into our economy to keep it from collapsing. So is it better to have your economy collapse or is it better to be where we're at right now? And from my own personal experience, I think there's a thin veneer of civilization out there that you know, if you start taking away people's food, and warm homes, et cetera. I don't think we want to see what's on the other side of that thin veneer of civilization. The board flips. <laughs> yeah. You know, you're, no, you're right. I, I think I do agree. It's, it's bad to pop the balloon, right? Definitely. Cause that's just, there's just chaos. So yeah. def deflation sounds to me, sounds good, but it's going to collapse eventually. You know, you can't just build up the house of cards. Right. And I lost my point. I lost my point. Yeah, you can't just build up the house of cards and I don't know. I lost it. Let's talk about taxes. Because I, right. I, I, did, I did mention taxes. Lowering taxes or right. raising taxes. You know, right. I, I do consume a lot of, I guess, left-wing media and centrist media and people would consider radical media. I don't even know how to describe it. But people <laughs> like, who like modern, 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 I'm MMT, modern monetary theory, whatever it is. And like yep. a lot of the common phrases Tax the rich to pay for this. Tax the corporations to pay for this. They don't pay their fair share. I'm just like, I don't think you understand what taxing businesses means. Right. When right. you tax, like when you when you get a receipt and you see that tax on your receipt, you go out to eat, you see the tax. That's not what you owe. That's what the business owes. Right. So when you raise taxes, who's going <clears> to <throat> pay for it? You and me. Exactly. You and me. Like yeah. I run a business. I didn't honestly, Chris, I didn't even know I could put taxes on an invoice until I sent my first invoice. I was like, oh wait. Oh wow. They can pay for the taxes. Like yeah. I thought I thought it was just all automatic. I was like, oh, this is amazing. So yeah, right. lowering taxes on businesses, one, I think is an excellent idea. Honestly, I think it should be I think all businesses should be zero. Why do businesses owe taxes? Businesses on people. If, right? if, so let, let me talk to you in terms of inventory or terms of inventory. Yeah. This is what I tell people about taxes. So would you rather sell, you know, one widget and make a hundred percent on that one widget uh, and only sell it once? Or would you rather sell a hundred widgets and make 1%? Well, 
well, people think about it there for a while. And I'm like, you understand it's turns of inventory. You can make way less money if you turn your inventory over and over and over again, multiple times. Well, that's how it is with taxes. So, you know, there's two times where, you know, there's two periods of time where you collect, you know, taxes that it doesn't work for anybody. And that's when you have 100% tax and a 0% tax. So if you have 100% tax, the government ain't going to collect anything because people ain't going to do anything. Yeah. 0% tax. <laughs> that's a great way of looking right. at it. <laughs> yeah. So if, if you have 0% tax, the government's gonna, not going to collect anything because you got 0% tax. What we really need to do, and, and nobody wants to sit down and you hear people talk about value added tax and you hear all these other, there's, a, there's that fine tuning. Is it 20% of somebody's income? Is it 18% of somebody's income? And I really think we, we actually, I, I had a professor in economics class and he, he probably made the most sense of any professor I had, but he's like, if you look at people's income, you know, below a certain point, you should actually get negative income. And what he meant by that is you should actually get paid by the government. So, you know, and, and we could, we did that. We did that during COVID where people got stimulus checks is what they ended up doing. So the question is, and some of the European companies, countries are trying this too. Like if you make $20,000 a year, you should get an additional 20,000. If you make 30,000, you should, you know, some kind of minimum income. A, a UBI, or, UBI. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, the, the jury's still out if that works, but my, my bigger point is that if you crank, you know, politicians say, hey, we need to raise taxes because we need more revenue coming in. They missed the whole point about turns of inventory, where if I was only gonna be taxed at 5% of my income, I'm gonna make as much as I possibly can because I'm only going to pay 5% of my tax. If I'm going to be taxed at 70% of it, my income, I'm going to be like, whoa, man, I don't need to work that hard. So, you yeah. know, I, I, I think we're in that tax adjustment period where people again are beginning to say, you know, how much is too much and how little is too little as far as taxes go. Anybody you talk to, talk to teenagers because when they get their first paycheck, oh they, yeah, they, they, I remember. First, all of a sudden, they're like, "I'm paying this in taxes. What what's going on?" It's like that's how the government. Well, that's unfair. Well, you got to understand, they're taking money from you and giving it to other people. You know what really? And they're redistributing the wealth. You know what really ticked me off in the pandemic? So I live in New Jersey, but you know, I work in Times Square. So even though I didn't commute into the city for over two, almost two years. I had to pay New York City taxes. Yep, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, this is this is some this is some and New York State taxes. Yeah. I was like, and New Jersey taxes. Right. Oh, this is some bullshit. It yeah. is. It made me genuinely mad. And I saw someone from Massachusetts tried suing New Hampshire because they worked in New Hampshire but worked from home in Massachusetts. The court threw it out because yeah. the government's not going to throw away give you back money. But 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 I, I think, you know, again, we're seeing this change where people are fleeing high income tax to low income tax states. They're voting with their feet. Yep. They're voting with their dollars. Yep. And, As they always have. It's the economy, yeah, stupid. And it, right. And, yeah. and yeah. And so all of a sudden the politicians are like, whoa, wait a minute. You know, we're in a bigger and bigger, and bigger hole. You know, what can we do? And, and you know, so you're getting some Band-Aids on the problem. Uh, you're getting legalized gambling, which I have a whole thesis about. Uh, you know, bar legalized marijuana is coming around the corner. Yep. Is that good or bad? I'm not going to comment. Muy bueno. Uh, what's that? Muy bueno. 
Right. You know, so uh, my only concern about legalized marijuana is we're going to replay the whole DUI thing again, uh, you know, which is going to put people in bad spots, um, you know, because, uh, you know, you don't want to be involved in that whole, you don't want to get in the system and what are they going to do? Yeah, you need, but you, need, it, you need criminal form, criminal reform with legalization of marijuana, which is right. you're not going to, you're not going to get both. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and so, you know, once again, back to taxation in the states, you know, the states are realizing we better adjust what we're doing, you know, from a tax standpoint. I mean, you know, there's a lot of people in New Jersey and New York that don't like this, but the whole salt tax, state and local tax was capped at 10 grand. And to me, that's a win for the little guy because you had guys with 10, 20, $30 million mansions, they were writing off $200,000 in taxes a year. How's that fair? you know, to the middle class is what it en- ended up being, where yeah. you got to pay your property taxes. You don't get the write-off. Especially you know, in New pro- Jersey. Yeah. And, 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 and so killer in New Jersey. Yeah. And and so, you know, why should, you know, and, and to be honest, that, that that actually turned out to be a good thing. So, um, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think, you know, kind of to sum it up on the tax situation, you need to fine tune you know, where your state and federal taxes are, uh, because otherwise you're going to see certain states continue to lose people and other states get people. So whenever, whenever um, I hear people talk about taxation, I feel like everyone, mostly everyone, except for you and me, of course, are is very disingenuous because when I hear Elon Musk doesn't, you pay more than tax than Elon Musk does. No, I don't. I don't. He pays property tax. He pays more sales tax than I do all of my taxes combined. He yeah. pays no income tax because he knows the legal loopholes. Now, I'm going yeah. to I'm gonna get to that in a second. But also, when it comes to, like, tax the rich, I go, okay, if you're going ta- to talk about taxes, I need a few simple questions answered first. How much money does the government collect in taxes a year? Once you have that number, you go, okay. Where is that money allocated to? How is it spent? Right. After you can answer those two questions, then you can have an honest discussion about whether we should raise or lower taxes. Because you pro- honestly, you probably don't need to touch taxes. You don't need to raise or lower taxes. You need to reallocate the money that's already collected. And to decrease government spending because people don't realize, I mean, or maybe they do. I mean, we've been running gigantic budget deficits. Oh, we and, know. <laughs> you know, you're, you're like... Okay, we're funding all these social programs. I mean, again, this is the circle back to what we talked about at the beginning as far as management of debt. Individuals have to manage debt. Companies have to manage debt. When is the U.S. government going to manage their debt? They're not. Now, I I keep hearing people, you know, and I get conspiracy theorists, you know, talking to me, and they're like, the whole debt system is going to collapse one day. Everything's going to collapse because there's so much debt. And I'm like, okay, let me give you the other side of that is if your house was $300,000 and you have a $200,000 mortgage, you can afford that, that's pretty good. If your house goes up to 600,000 and you have a $200,000 mortgage, that's even better. The assets have gone up in value and your debt has stayed the same. But if your debt increases to 300,000 and your house is at 700, you're still net less leverage than you were obviously before on a percentage basis. Now, I'm going to draw this all together. When you have government debt expanding at a rapid pace, you know, like it has been, and there's more, uh, this is the old guns and butter back to, you know, you know, the economy. And what we mean by that is guns are government spending. 
butter is, you know, you and I spending our money. If the government's spending much more money, will they don't care how much they pay for something. They don't, because uh, they've got unlimited amount of money to spend. Uh, you and I only have a certain amount of money to spend. So again, yeah, I really think, you, you know, people are, What's that? The government's really good at spending other people's money. Exactly. And they're really and, good and at think, hiding it too. Yes. And, and oh, absolutely. No question about it. And, and I think people are waking up to that and they're going to say, okay, if the economy's going into a recession and things aren't doing well, we need to increase the size of government spending and, and you know, get the economy going. The economy's doing really well and the government's still spending a lot of money. That That's like a boat anchor when you're driving across the lake in your boat and you're dragging this boat anchor it drags the economy down. So yeah. once again, are, are, are we going to you know, have a real conversation about government spending? And let's, and let's just say, leftists, I love you out there. I love you very much. Let's just say you get everything you want. They have a, a profits windfall tax on the oil companies. They tax Elon Musk out the ass. They tax all the corporations as much as you want. They raise the income tax. They get all this money. Where do you think it's actually going to go? Because let me yeah. give you a hint. It's not going to go where you want it to go. Right, right. It's, it's not, because otherwise it would be there already. Right. Well, and that's why, like I said, the strong libertarianism streak is going to come from people in your generation because you're going to say, is it better for me to write a check to, you know, a philanthropic organization or is it better for the government? The government to it's handle always it. always better for the individual to write that yeah. check. Because they can do more research. I can, a lot of... Unfortunately, a lot of charities are scams, and they just embezzle the money themselves. But right. that's that's just that's just the way that's the way American system. That's just the way Americans are. But a lot of a lot of charities are good, and one of oh, the yeah, things that's of happening with the internet, like we just uh, in our practice here, rather than you know, it used to be in the RIA business. At the end of the year, you thank your clients, you send them a gift basket or whatever. We started this a couple of years ago, where we make a donation on our clients' behalf. What a huge positive response we've gotten from people. And this year we targeted this couple. Uh, they, they put together backpacks, uh, you know, filled with school. They do it themselves. And they're just a small little, their own charity. They filed their own 5013C. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's really heartwarming to see that this couple wants to do good, you know, out there. And so, I, you know, we're going to be offering them as one, you know, entity that, uh, you know, we're going to end up giving money to uh, on behalf of our clients. So well, one thing we really want to do here at APS um, is we were going to have a nonprofit, but we decided against that. But we have like a donation. We have a GoFundMe right now, which is for funding so we can fund podcasts for nonprofits, not for for nonprofits. Oh, very cool. So like if you like I say you gave us one hundred fifty dollars as a donation, that one hundred fifty dollars would be used to give um to buy a microphone for a nonprofit so they can start a podcast yep. and get their voice out there. So that's something we <laughs> want to do. Um because I love podcasting, Chris. If you can't tell we're talking for 90 minutes here. <laughs> it's just this is what I do and I'm gonna be podcasting until the day I roll over dead and end up in the ground and then my trillions of wealth is passed on to my kids. There you go. Um, well this is the what what you're doing is the new radio. I mean if you look yeah. at the forms of media and how media has changed in the last 10 years, I mean if you look at media you know, the last 50 years, TV, moving pictures, radio really didn't change that much. Well, now literally in the last five to 10 years, you've got video on demand. You can watch TV shows whenever you want. 
you know, you've got podcasts where you can listen to, you know, whatever you want. I mean, media, you're in an exciting industry because media is changing much, much more rapidly. I mean, here in our practice, I've gone from sending letters to sending emails to recording videos and sending them out to clients. I mean, yeah. you know, the change has been dramatic as far as in, in the financial services. I mean, let me tell you, podcasting, people aren't sleeping on podcasting, but I don't think people realize the full potential of what yeah. podcasting can actually do to your business, not even on the front end from clients and entertainment and this, that, and the other, selling advertisements, building a community, building an audience. I'm talking about the back ends with the marketing and the SEO and everything, oh, you can, absolutely. everything you can do with an RSS feed, stuff you can attach that to, email marketing. Like, it's so explosive, and we're coming for you. <laughs> Essentially, yeah. is all I'm going to say in Biggest Podcast Solutions. Because it's just the stuff you can do in terms of marketing a podcast, how it can benefit your business, is an untapped well. Oh, even, I agree. Even talking 100%. about free market innovation, that's what I plan to do. That's what we plan to do as a company, and uh, hopefully we can get some tax cuts. Yeah, well, <laughs> and, and, and so the other thing that, you know, again, you're the poster child for the next generation. Uh, you know, if you want to be an entrepreneur, it's easier. There are different things. I mean, who would have thought, you know, even 10 years ago, you could make money sitting behind a microphone talking to people? Well, guess what? You can but before you had to get on the radio, you had to get advertisers, you had to figure out, and there was like this barrier to entry. Well, with podcasting, there's no barrier to entry anymore. You got a mic and a, and a computer and you're in business. And, you know, as long as you've got good informative content that, you know, I, I keep telling my kids, we keep threatening them to send them to YouTube university uh, because I keep telling people, do you really want to spend, you know, a hundred thousand dollars in a four year degree, or do you want to get on YouTube Anything you want to learn, you can get on YouTube. Uh, and I think the same thing's going to happen with in the podcasting world too, where people are going to be like, hey, I want to hear, you know, what's going on in the world of finance. I want to hear what's going on in the economy, whatever. Hey, you know, this is a long format where you can really delve into some of the intricacies. Uh, you know, like I've thrown a lot of economic stuff out there that I've learned over my many, many years. You know, hopefully people are like, wow, man, you know, I want to learn more about that or, you know, hey, what's what's going on? So, yeah, Chris, I'm looking forward to the day you actually start a podcast, the day you email me like, hey, Will, the podcast is launched. Here it is. And like, finally. <laughs> oh, yeah. My two year plans come to fruition. Right. There you go. <laughs> but all right, Chris, I think that is a good place to wrap it up. We've been talking for an hour and 38 minutes and counting. Um, hey, I like to talk. We did have more things on the top of my mind, but we'll get to it another day. I'll definitely bring you back. But before we go. The last question always goes to the guest. If there's anything you want to ask me, my friend, now is the time. Um, well, I really enjoy your enthusiasm and, and, and how passionate you are. You, you know, you've seen hundreds of, you know, videos done, um, you, you know, so you've got in a couple of years, you, you've seen presenters and people and, and, you know, talking what are the couple of biggest mistakes that people make when they talk and present? I'm always curious about that. That's a great question. In terms of like on a podcast or just in terms of on an interview, it create content for the internet. What's the biggest mistake people make? Oh, I think, I think people are honestly afraid to be themselves. Hmm. I think people, um, one of the things that drives me crazy for some of the interviews I do for my nine to five job is 
when people have a script in front of them, when people have pre <laughs> prepared answers, there's nothing wrong with prepared questions, but prepared answers drive me crazy. If mm. I see you reading a script and you don't feel authentic, I want to turn you off immediately. Um, with podcasting and content creation for the internet, the podcast acronym is a personal, professional oriented discussion centered around select topics. That's what, oh. a, that's what a podcast, that's a Will Tarrish yeah. original and you can use it. But the P stands for personal, right? You got to put yourself out there. I am very comfortable being myself on a podcast. Um, Joe Rogan is so successful because he is so comfortable right. being himself on a podcast and he's <laughs> very good at dragging the authenticity out of his guests. Yeah. Like you, incredibly authentic. Like that's one thing I noticed from our interviews and just listening to you over the past few years. You have no fear of being authentic. You're going to say what you think. You'll tiptoe certain things about politics or whatever because that's just <laughs> a smart thing to do. Um, but you're authentic. So the, one of the biggest mistakes I see is that people would rather play a character hmm. than have themselves be a character. Because hmm. I, I also come, I come from a wrestling background. As a wrestling background, I mean like WWE watching as a fan. Right, right, I right. Do, I do my wrestling podcast. <clears throat> I am so bombastic and ridiculous and absurd on that podcast. I'm yelling and screaming, having fun. Um, but I do that because in wrestling, the most successful character is the one that's closest to yourself just turned up to 11. Right. And I take that into podcasting. And I think people in general, when they're making content, need to remember that the P stands for personal. Yeah. Podcasts are very personal. People yep. are going to connect with you as a host more than the content you're, you're, you're presenting. Right. People are going to believe what you're saying because they like you more than that actually makes sense. Yep. So yep. I think people are afraid or just kind of just get out there and get out of their comfort zone and just be Yeah, themselves. and I, I think they're afraid of looking stupid. I mean, that too. You know, I'm, not, I, I'm not always going to be right, uh, you know, but hey – I'd rather be 80% right fast than, you know, hundred percent right slow or, you know, whatever, however the saying goes, but I, I think you're exactly right. I mean, the only people that can really pull off scripted answers and things like that are actors and actresses, good mm -hmm. ones. Mm -hmm. And I ain't an actor and I ain't an actress, obviously. Um, you, you know, so you got to come across as authentic. Uh, and I think that's what people appreciate. Uh, you, you know, so good. That was good. Okay. I also, I also think a lot of people see this new media and think they have to be like old media, right? right. They, they, right. they have to keep it in sound bites. They have to keep it in segments. They can't, yep. they can't break the mold. Whereas podcasting right. is, there is no mold. Right. There's nothing. It's a blank canvas. Go paint a painting. Yep. So yeah, that was a good question, Chris. I was didn't didn't expect that from you, but I like I'm <laughs> glad you asked it. So um, we'll bring you back probably in January or February on my, my, my birthday. We'll see what happens depending on our travel right. schedule and all that stuff. But tell everyone where they can find you, your website, your services. I don't know if you deal with people just locally or nationally. Uh, if you do online sessions, but anything you want to plug, share, people can find you. My friend, the floor is yours. Yeah, so uh, if you go to our website, uh, engelbertfa.com, all our content is up there. We have tons of videos. Uh, our our um, emails up there. Our phone numbers are up there. Uh, start at engelbert, E-N-G-L-E-B-E-R-T-F-A.com. And if you really want to get into it, uh, again, I got something really cool. I have an app 
for your smartphone, you can download. You download by app by texting Chris E at C H R I S E to 36260. So if you text Chrissy to 36260, my app, you can hit the link. It'll come up. You can download my app. Why do you want to download my app? Great way to get a hold of me. Uh, phone numbers on there, emails on there. Uh, also, all the videos that we do are on my app as well. So this is a long form video. We do a lot of three minute, five minute, seven minute updates on the economy, updates on the markets. We did a really good Medicare uh, webinar uh, with a, a Medicare specialist. So we're always providing content out there. But again, uh, you know, we have clients all over the country. Uh, we do Zoom meetings, Zoom calls. Uh, we can talk to you about what you're trying to go through. And again, remember, uh, you, you know, uh, I always use the analogy that when people are watching NFL football and they look on the sidelines and they see all the players, well, they see about 20 or 30 other guys out there. Well, guess what? That's the quarterback coach, the tight ends coach, the line coach. You know, literally world-class champions have coaches as well. And I don't want to get into that corny like, hey, we're a financial coach. But really what we do is we help people with strategy uh, as far as what they're doing. Uh, hey, I'm trying to save for retirement or I'm retiring or we just had a baby. Call us. We'll help those. You know, we'll help people with that. So. All right, Chris, thank you so much for being a guest on the Talking with Tarashuk podcast. I really appreciate it. Next time we'll talk about my portfolio. We'll break down the do's and don'ts of my portfolio. A lot of mutual funds. I have all, all, right. my, all my money in mutual funds. But until next time, ladies and gentlemen, my name is Will Tarashuk. That's T as in Thomas, A-R-A-S-H-U-K. This has been a Talking with Tarashuk podcast. Links in the description down below. Uh, if you watch it on YouTube to all of Chris's shenanigans as well as all my shenanigans, subscribe to the podcast. Leave a five-star review. Help us out here. This podcast is trying to grow on Talking with Tarashuk and the ambiguous podcast solutions. We'll be back next time. With a few more, I got a few more how-to podcast series is coming out. It may some more unknown, unnamed nonsense once all those are done. Into the new year, it's going to be a great year. And I can't wait to see you all there. But until then, y'all take